Thanks for being here today. There's a few of us here, and then thank you for, for tuning in. I hope everybody's okay. Um, it's very easy to just imagine. Uh, I'm glad to know that you're, that you're around. It's, it's easy to imagine that we're alone uh, in a world like this, in the place that, we, uh, in the place that we're in. Uh, it's, it's easy to imagine either the best or the worst, and um, so we're thinking of you, and I hope that you're okay. Uh, for now, what we're going to do is we're going to dive into, this, into Scripture together. So 1 Peter chapter 4 is where we're at, 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there. If uh, you need to, I believe that we're going to have uh, some of the words starting in verse 5, although I'm going to focus on 6 and after. I believe we're going to have some of those uh, verses available on the screen behind us or in front of you uh, at home. But we've been considering 1 Peter now for a number of months. Uh, this is, the, in many ways, the pandemic book. Uh, Peter is, uh, is becoming a, a help to us. He's our aid. He's our comfort during a time of un- uncertainty. And we're now up through and in the middle of, we're going to get through the middle of the fourth chapter of First Peter. Before I begin reading, and again, I'm going to focus in on verse 6 and then following. Before I begin reading, I just want to reorient us a little bit to where we are. Uh, the whole book is about suffering. It's about Christians who are unsure Uh, Maybe at their worst moments, they're tempted to believe that God has abandoned them, that He's not there, that He's not for them, that they might not make it. And then beyond that, let's say that that's the worst moments, where they just wonder, they just fear that they might not make it altogether. The rest of the time, perhaps, they just live with a constant kind of aching, a constant questioning, an unhealthy level of anxiety that what is happening to them is not right, it's not planned and it must be done away with. And for good reason, in many cases, they feel that way. They're suffering directly in many ways and then also indirectly beyond. So that's been the context of the whole book. What we started in 1 Peter chapter 4 last week was the most counterintuitive statement yet, the most supernatural need that God's people would have yet, and that is this, that Peter says, not only are you going to make it, not only is God for us and He's with us in the midst of suffering and difficulty in this world, not only are you going to make it, but you're going to thrive you're going to grow. Now, this might not be evident. You might not have uh, in your soul and in your mind and in your words and in your motives, you might, have, you might have not have immediate fruit. It might not be evident to you. But Peter says, I want you to trust this, that God's refinement, the suffering that you're walking through, is going to lead those who arm themselves with this thinking, it's going to lead them to ceasing from sin, to putting away unrighteous things, that this is part of God's process for making us like his son. Verses 1 through 4 and 5 are one aspect of holiness. So what Peter's trying to say is this, uh, put aside all that's happening around you. Put aside the suffering, the distraction. Put aside the leaders who you know are unjust. Submit to them because they're under my rule. You put put away all of those things and focus on this. Focus on this. What is God doing in my soul? Am I becoming more like Jesus. That question, that's what holiness means, it's to, be, to be made more and more into the image of God. It is His will for us. And the first part of chapter 4 introduces us to a concept of holiness that is probably the most common. If you asked a thousand people on the street, many of whom would be irreligious, just describe what is holiness, they might give to you a list of things that people don't do. Here is what I stopped doing. Here is what I refuse. And we said clearly last week that that is perfectly fine. It is a very, very God-honoring and Christian thing sometimes to say, no, I won't. No, I don't. However, I said that there would be a part two, 
And I want to remind you that the, the thing that we lost in the fall, the thing that sin robs from us, is the full vision of wholeness, of what it means to walk in the image of God, to be purposeful in this life. And we are living anemic, small, kind of waiting around wasted lives if we believe that holiness, if God's purpose for our life is simply to keep us safe, to keep us as much in the shrink wrap as we can, if all of our life is focused on what am I avoiding, as long as I don't, as long as I say no, as long as I don't really mess up. In other words, many Christians, I think Christians and certainly the world, but many Christians could be tempted to believe that holiness, simply God's design for our lives is simply that we do not serve a jail sentence. And as long as I avoid any of those list of big things, I don't commit wrong things, then this is God's purpose for my life. And what Peter's going to remind us of here is that we need to think bigger than this. We need to believe that God has designed us for so much more than this. Holiness, when you get down to it, holiness is a path for fullness of life. Holiness is a task, is a calling that infuses all that we do with meaning and purpose and joy. Holiness is about, we can't ignore it, I think people would flip the other way too, as long as you're loving people, it doesn't matter what you do. As long as you're generous, it doesn't matter what you do. Now, now the Bible has both these things in tension. There are things we say no to, but today what Peter's going to remind us is, but listen, don't just say no. Say no so that you can be freed up to give the most powerful, passionate, proactive yes possible. And it's yes to these things, yes to a full life, yes to a holiness that glorifies God. That's where he's picking this up in 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 6. At the end of verse 5, he reminds them that these people who have maligned them for saying no are going to be judged. So he's just brought up the judgment in verse 5. He says, remember, you're going to die and there's going to be a judgment. And what happens then in verse 6 is he wants to give hope to Christians because he knows that there are some of those who are reading this who say, wait a minute, but what about all the Christians who have already also died? And so he says it in verse 6, and I'll go down through verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is about the purpose for your life. Is the life that God has called us to in Jesus Christ going to be fulfilling? Is it worth it? Is there enough to do? And Peter says, I want to be careful to give you a vision for your life that doesn't leave you bored and just thinking if I avoid certain things, I'm okay. I think about this for my own 
soul and for my own family or for my own kids or for people who I've been in ministry with, I think to myself, have I given them a picture of holiness, a picture of God's purpose for human beings, for those who are made in His image? Have I given them an idea of a a full life, a purposeful life, or have I just given them a long list of things to avoid so that ultimately what they find is, I am safe, but I am really bored. I have nothing to do. And Peter moves on. He moves on from the… Here's the thing. Did you notice what happened in the first four verses of uh, chapter 4? All the other people are doing all of those things. Now, some of them, he calls them a flood of debauchery. But the point is, at least they're doing something. And they malign you because what it could be left at, if you have a kind of idea of of holiness that leaves you at the first four to five verses of chapter 4, you're just going to be sitting at home. They left and went out, and you're at home. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever felt that before, but it's possible. It's possible to feel like you're, you're nailing it. You're doing everything you're supposed to do, but you look around and you're just kind of thinking, but now what? Idleness. Idleness is not a substitute for holiness. So Peter tells us, here's the deal. Those of us who have the life of God in us, There is a way to live, a fullness of life that gives holiness more punch. And so he goes on, and I'm going to walk through the verses to give us an idea of what does a full life look like? What are we here for? Maybe that's the question. What are we here for? And what I want to answer is the why of holiness. If childlike faith is what pleases God, then I want to introduce us to a childlike inquisitive nature concerning the purpose of our lives. At different moments in my parenthood, I've taken times and just taken stock of the number of questions that I'm asked in any given moment. There's been times when I can get to over 40 within 10 minutes. So what does childlike faith look like? Well, if you ask me what children are like, they want to know the purpose behind everything. Not just curiosity. I think there's a curiosity because they're interested. Oh, that seems interesting to me. But more than that, what children carry with them from beginning to end, I think what starts as a kind of innocent why in everything as a child. It continues on, and here's what happens in the human soul. We never stop asking why. They maybe just realize that it's annoying to keep doing so. And eventually, that if a, if a person, as they grow from a child, they never stop asking why. As they grow from a child, they might just stuff the why down somewhere deep into them and eventually be bitter at a world or bitter at the people around them that can't tell them why they're living. We are purpose-based beings. We've been designed to know what is this about. If someone lives for too long with a sense that what they're doing does not matter, that they have no place in the world, that they're busy and they're active and they're doing all the things, but they're constantly nagging, a nagging thing in the bottom of the pit of their stomach that just says, but why? Why is a God-infused question? I think that's why kids ask it so much. And it's delightful and cute in them. It's a midlife crisis in us. Meaning, purpose, value, What are we here for? And I can tell you what you're here for. You want to know the secret to your life? The secret? You want to know the the purpose to all things? 
You want to know one thing I can tell you for sure? It's not who to date. It's not what career to take. It's not what job. I hope God leads you in those things too. But this, the scripture is so clear on. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. God's will for your life, your holiness. God's will for your life, being made into the image of Jesus. Which is why I'm so grateful that Peter doesn't leave us with just all the stuff we're not to do. He's going to keep us busy. Here's how he does so. Verse 6. He says, The gospel is preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, it's a wonderful way to, to describe the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death, Scripture says, all the way back from Genesis uh, up here to this point. And Peter says, well, you're probably wondering about those who have already died. Well, they died because people in the flesh die. That's the judgment for sin. But we preach the gospel to them, and he says that those who are dead are not really dead. They're now first and fully living in the hope of living in the Spirit of God. They live in the Spirit the way that God does. So the question then becomes, this is the stage that he's setting, well, how does God live? How does the Spirit of God live? It's going to live through us. It's going to live through us. So he points backward and he says, those who have already died in Christ, they're fully, finally living the way that the Spirit of God intended them to live. And then he starts at verse 7, and the Spirit here, the thing that we're supposed to take is, and so we ought to hope and desire to live finally in the Spirit in the way that God designed us to as well. What being reborn in the image of God means, what confessing Jesus Christ in your sins, what receiving forgiveness looks like, is that you have been remade, repositioned, reclaimed to live the way that God intended you to live. So verse 7, he tells us the end of all things is at hand. I don't know that anyone knows with certainty exactly what, which of all these all things and what the end meant and, and then what is at hand. We're not sure exactly what Peter means by this, except to say there's some underlying idea that God has things under control. He's telling them you're suffering, but it's going to be yet for a little while because ultimately every authority, every rule, every stubborn, unjust situation in the world is going to be undone. That when Jesus Christ came into this world in the flesh and lived a perfect life that none of us could live, but a life that needed to be lived, and when Jesus submitted Himself to death, even death on a cross, and He bore the wrath of God, that He went into the grave, proclaimed good news to even those who are dead, and erupts forward, breaking death itself. Peter is saying to them, listen, yes, the suffering is real here, but all of this, this is a side note in history now. God has done away with all of this. One day, justice will fully and perfectly come, and you'll be delivered. So that stuff, the end of all things, I think there's a sense of that. That's what he means. The end of all things is at hand. Christ is here. He's come. There is a definitive flag in human history. God has moved decisively. Knowing that, therefore, this is where the positive side, the active side of holiness comes in. Therefore, he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This, therefore, is intended to fill our time when we've said no to all the things. Now, I'm going to make this drastic so you know it, but like your buddies come up and they're like, hey, we're going to rob a bank. What are you doing this afternoon? I got nothing to do this afternoon. The question is, you're not going to go rob the bank, right? The question is, well, what are you going to fill your time with? 
So you sit down and you say to yourself, well, my buddies just left. They're all going to rob a bank. But what do you do? Is God now just pleased and done with you for the day? Good job. No. Peter says, therefore. And this therefore is there to give us an idea, now that we've turned from ourselves and turned from the ways of the world, to say, here's what we ought to be doing. And he opens up by saying, be self-controlled and sober-minded. And I love this. I think it's a very direct, it's not even really a kind of hidden play on words. It's very direct. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded, which can mean a couple of things. Literally, it means don't be drunk, which is what he says to avoid doing previously. But he says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. In other words, have a sort of possession of oneself by the power of the Spirit of God that allows you to focus on what is important and to leverage yourself into a spiritual life. There's a reason that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the ability to identify the things that are most poignant, the most important, the most vital to your greatest joy and happiness and purpose in life, and then to actually control yourself and push yourself toward those things. And Peter is saying, remember this, that when the Spirit of God came into your life, He awakened in you an ability to actually pursue what you ought to pursue. Some of the greatest moments in life when you feel most alive is when you have a moment of clarity and realize what you're supposed to be or what you're supposed to be doing or how your time ought to be spent. And then you find yourself actually able to do it. I cannot tell you how many good ideas I have. If I could... If I could live in the world of my good intentions and good ideas, it would be an amazing life. I would be so happy. But you know what often happens? A lack of self-control. Do you know the wonderful workout regimen that I can imagine in my mind? Can you even imagine how good my prayer life and Bible reading would be if I could, if I just, you know how many good ideas I have for these things? Do you know how happy my wife would be? if my best laid plans were executed? Can you just imagine? So, so what is it? What is it between the things that we feel in a moment of clarity, and hopefully these are, these are God-wrought things, and that's the assumption here, we're Christians. In a moment of clarity, when you feel most alive and most purposeful and you, you just see it, well, what is that thing that gets us from here to there? And Peter says, be self-controlled. Rely on the Spirit of God to give you self-controlled. This is an act of claiming of your passions, your time, your thought, your efforts. This is the kind of idea that, that what God has designed us to be, that He also empowers us to get there if we would leverage our whole selves toward the greatest good. Therefore, be self-controlled. The first step to holiness in a Christian is someone who has possession of oneself. It's to realize and to understand that to live according to the ways and whims of the world will not lead you toward greater godliness. More than that, to live according to the whims and the passions of your own soul with thoughtlessness and without effort will not lead you where you ought to go. You do not get to the safe harbor of God-honoring wholeness in your life 
By pulling down the sail of your... I have never sailboated ever, but I hope this makes sense. By pulling down the sail of your ship and letting the ocean waves toss you wherever they may, you'll end up somewhere, but not the God-honoring life that He desires. That, that's the, the idea here. So be self-controlled. Maturing in the Christian life is a spirit-wrought ability to find and see all that God desires. And because He's alive in you, all that you then desire, and to be able to put it to action. This means taking stock of the resources that God has given us including our abilities and our personalities and the people around us and our time and our context and working toward them. He tells us that when we do this, we have this kind of self-controlled, sober-minded, these are connected, a clarity of what is really important. And that's the thing that happens. You know, the Bible's funny about drunkenness. It says, don't be drunk with strong drink, lest you forget your God and His commandments. So, not only is drunkenness condemned as a sin in Scripture, but it also is condemned as a sin because it will lead you to other sins, a.k.a. you will be fuzzy about who you are and whose you are in this world. So, the opposite of that, this is the first step toward holiness. You've set aside those things because it's not worth it to you. What is worth it to you is to be alive, to be clear-minded to God and His purpose for your life. First step. And you do this for the sake of your prayers. He tells us then, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now, this is written in a way that I believe is is encouraging. This is a wonderful piece of pastoring by Peter to the people. Keep loving one another earnestly. He's giving them credit. He's telling them that a kind of real love is active among them. And he tells them this is going to be the kind of life that comes from you. Love, earnest love for one another will be a mark of a self-controlled life life. These are not disconnected. Holiness in a Christian is going to mean this. When you leverage all of your time, what you're going to realize is that one of the greatest things to put yourself toward, the greatest call of Scripture, the great commandment is to love neighbor as self. It is a rare thing for the most loving people to be that way by accident. If you really love one another or love someone earnestly, it's probably because you leveraged something to get there. You let the Spirit of God move in you to put aside your own selfishness or your own time or your own fears. You gave thought toward and then action toward the good of another. And he says, above all, first and foremost, grow in this. Love one another earnestly. This reminds us right from the start Here's something that'll keep you busy for a while. If holiness is just about stopping doing things personally and never going anywhere, that's one thing. But the moment, and this will keep you busy, the moment you realize that God's plan for your sanctification and holiness is by necessity going to include an entire community of other people, you'll get busy. Because involving anyone else in your plans and in your life is going to take up more time, more effort. It's going to get at the character of your soul. Community. He says, keep loving one another. So what does holiness look like for Christians? Well, first he says, uh, how are you doing with one another? Look around at one another. And he tells them to keep loving one another earnestly because holiness is a group project. 
and sometimes it feels like that. It's a group project. Loving the family of God in the midst of their suffering is going to be a kind of balm for them. It's going to help them as they suffer. Now, he has a phrase here that I think needs to be described because it can be, this is a dangerous phrase in the Bible. It's a very dangerous phrase. It can be wielded with great delight. It can bring about progress in only, not only personal holiness, but in, in communal holiness and relational and family holiness, but it can also be used and abused. He tells us this, when you love one another earnestly, that he says, do this since love covers a multitude of sins, since love covers a multitude of sins. Now, the reason that this is tricky and the reason that you need the Spirit of God moving and you need the community to help you with these things is because the other thing that covers a multitude of sins is sin. That's why it's called a cover-up. It's possible that a multitude of sins, because we want to live in darkness, it's possible that a multitude of sins would simply be shoved under the rug. But it turns out that there's a different kind of covering, and I want to say right up front, this is not what Peter is telling us. Peter is not telling us, ignore sins, because that's what love does. This kind of covering is a different thing altogether. Love covers sin in different kind of ways. Now, the first option, I believe, in the idea of love covering a multitude of sins is to understand and to realize this, that someone who's been forgiven by the lavish grace of God will have a disposition towards others where they will desire to give and want to live in forbearance. They will have patience with one another. The covering here means that in the midst of a community that you will quickly reconcile you will want to give forgiveness. You will be patient with one another. There will be a kind of graciousness that is automatic. I think what Peter realizes here is that grace, believing the best, giving the benefit of the doubt, is the currency of relationships. The moment you pull back, the moment you determine, I'm not going to live lovingly with other people, the moment you bring this back and say, I will offer nothing by my disposition, then you will immediately and only have problems with other people. I think one of the things that people are fighting about in our world, one of the things that people have noticed in the different treatment of socioeconomic status, of cultures and race, what people are saying is, is that there is you can observe between certain types of people a forbearance, a predetermined disposition of love, that when you interact with someone who you have already said, I want to give grace to this person, that you receive them more easily. You are quick to offer forgiveness. You believe the best. You give grace without it being a burden. Whereas, when you have determined to be unloving, toward different groups of people or people who are unlike you, the interaction from the beginning of, is one of suspicion, of one of rejection, a kind of underlying attitude that says, let's get this over with as quickly as possible so that you don't hurt me or sin or we don't have to fight about something because I know that's what you're going to do. When you remove love from a relationship, when you begin to live with a kind of suspicion toward the other, 
you will find that there are a multitude of sins. See, that's the thing about fallen people. If you want to look at people's problems, you'll find them. You ever thought about this? You ever been critiqued by someone? And then in a moment of just real humility, humility thought to yourself, well, here's the problem. They're totally right, and there's much more than that that they don't even know about yet. If people wanted to live in an unloving way toward you, they could. And Peter says this, in the community of God, those who have been forgiven of their sins live with one another in a kind of forbearing way that understands and takes into account the fallenness of the world, the sin of individuals, and be willing to offer grace. And in this way, love will cover, love will be a kind of, a kind of mercy that melds people together more than that, though, and I want to say this clearly, this is why I think, this is where I think we avoid the, the potential downfalls of just making this a sweeping things under the rug. Love covers a multitude of sins in the way that Jesus' love covered a multitude of sins. God so loved the world that He gave His Son to die for us. In other words, it paid the penalty of forgiveness for the other. Love covers a multitude of sins by being willing to forgive, that when sin is evident, and in the open, and confessed, and shared between parties. Love says, I am willing to forgive. There are times when you don't have to be nitpicky, and you don't have to bring up every possible thing between another. You don't have to point out every personality flaw. You don't have to live with them as though you're two lawyers fighting over a mediation in a case. That's forbearance. But there are other instances where something that has been destructive or hurtful or brought to the surface, one who is loving toward another says, my desire here is to forgive. In every single instance of forgiving, to forgive someone is to bear a burden. To forgive, this is what it means, to forgive is to forego the debt that you were owed. In a moment of forgiveness... You are saying to another, I am releasing my claim upon you. And this is what love looks like. Peter tells them, God has purchased you. He's made you His own. You are His community. He has forgiven you. Therefore, forgive one another. A step toward holiness to be self-controlled, to love one another earnestly in community, and to get better at forgiveness. Get better at forgiveness. That's what he says. He moves on in verse 9, and he says this, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. This is a wonderful phrasing of this, of this two-handed, two-sided thing here. Show hospitality. In Scripture, this idea of hospitality is a kind of, of stranger love. Love toward another who is perhaps different than you or someone who does not deserve it or someone who wouldn't need it. This is active love toward another. It would have literally meant in their time, open your home and open your table and open your things to them. Hospitality without grumbling essentially is a call to them toward generosity. He said, I don't want you to love merely in platitudes. That's why I think it's wonderful with the one before. If verse 8 is mainly about emotions and disposition toward another, he says, more than that, I want you to open up. Holiness is going to mean that you rearrange your stuff. 
And your godliness will eventually show up in the way that you deal with your things. It means that you're going to be more open to having another chair at the table. It means that your door literally is going to open to more people. It means you're going to see the needs of others, and you will joyfully rush to meet them. And he says, you're going to do this without grumbling. I guess he's just recognizing that it's possible to show hospitality and to grumble the whole time. You ever been the recipient of grumbling hospitality? Where someone helps you, and the entire time you feel more and more and more guilty that they're helping you? And you think, I really would have rather gone without You've received something that really feels like you're being in their debt. And Peter says, don't do this. If first and foremost, you are to look toward other people and to love them well, secondly, you're supposed to look toward their needs and give generously and joyfully. And it's this kind of giving, it's this kind of other's focus that is going to keep you busy in life. He varies, he varies the way that he approaches this a little bit. You have to infer in verses 8 and 9 that this is about you giving. And then in verse 10, he just brings it up and just starts to use this word gift. He tells them, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. This tells us a good reminder about the spiritual gifts. A lot of people want to talk to me often about the spiritual gifts. What do you think about the spiritual gifts? But what about the spiritual gifts? And there's a lot to be discussed there. I understand why they want to talk about them. Some of them are fantastic the way they're described in Scripture. They're supernatural. They're over the top in some instances. But I usually want to make sure when I'm talking to someone about spiritual gifts that we've mastered the basics first. And it turns out that mastering the basics in any discipline, let alone living a godly life, is going to take a long time. Here's the first thing that Peter tells them and something we must infer about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are communal in nature. We don't have time to get into all of the list of spiritual gifts and to say how many could be in practice and how should they be used. There's other places in Scripture that hit that. But let's just say this. You will say, if you, are, if you have the Spirit of God in you and you're living, you will say something like this. Whatever has been given me, whatever ability God has given me to be a blessing in this world, it is not for me and my personal aggrandizement. It is for others. It's for the body. Spiritual gifts are for the body of Christ, not for individual Christians. Spiritual gifts are for Christ's body. And this is going to be a key indicator when you ask all the questions about proper use. The number of questions someone would ask about, is this okay, and is this gift useful, or is this gift authorized, could be answered, I think, if we start with the basic key indicator, which is essentially this. Is this use of a spiritual gift? Is the evidence that's coming for it communal in nature? Is it building up the body rather than one's self? This is the first assumption we can make from Peter's teaching on spiritual gifts. The other thing here that's important, and it'll lead us toward grace toward one another, he says the gifts are varied as good stewards of God's varied grace. This is a good reminder that God has determined in His good pleasure to give a diversity of gifts in the church. What we mustn't do is to take a particular kind of gift and then mandate it on every single person as a litmus test for their seriousness in the Christian faith. God has given a variety of gifts. He tells them they're to, to be stewards of these things. They aren't ours in the first place. We didn't make them. We won't keep them. We haven't, we haven't mustered them up by our own genius. A steward is someone who is borrowing 
for the sake of something, and eventually we'll have to give an account. It's this kind of giving to one another that God calls us to in a fullness of life. He gives some examples. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And then ultimately, I believe that Peter gives them the greatest vision that can be given for a full and a holy life. If you are still harboring the God-given desire you had as a child to say, but why, but why, but why, what is the purpose? Peter says, here is the gift that God has given you in Jesus Christ. You have been reclaimed back to a relationship with Him so that ultimately all that you do can glorify Him. This is Romans 3.23 kind of stuff. All have sinned and fallen what? Short of the glory of God. Holiness is going to be the slow process, the sanctifying process by which we are restored to the glory of God in the way that we ought. It gives them a vision to say that a holy life, a busy, purposeful, full Christian life is going to be the kind of life that recognizes that God is first and foremost, and that what He's restored you to is the opportunity, the willingness the joyful pursuit of glorifying God in all that you do through Jesus Christ. Peter gives them a vision, a kind of summary statement that ultimately all that we do will not be lost. Apart from Christ, all of our best efforts, everything that we did, this fallen world is crying out why, and ultimately the answer is going to be for nothing, like chaff burned away. But Peter says, for all those who are in Christ, who have understood that they have been given gifts to serve one another, who understand and are, are using actively their hospitality, their stuff to be a blessing without grumbling, those who are learning to love one another well, those who are from their own soul saying, God, give me your spirit to be self-controlled, to be sober-minded. The hope that we have ultimately is the way we live in this life will go on forever. It's like that one movie said, it'll echo in eternity. Which one was that? It was Gladiator or something. Literally, God designed us so that what we do will echo through eternity. That one day, all of our efforts, all of our thinking, all of our praying, all of our giving, all of our stuff even, will be leveraged so that God will be more made glorious. Now, he, He's ultimately the one that makes Himself glorious, but you get the point. And if you wonder, what am I supposed to be doing in life? There is no greater purpose than to live for something that will never be taken, that will never be diminished, that will echo through the ages forever and ever and ever. Amen. What we mustn't do is to live an idle life. What we mustn't do is to imagine that God's design for us is to be holy. In other words, what we need to do is just grit it out and be unhappy for our life so that we can be happy in the next Peter tells them, don't you understand that what God has done is He has taken you from a place of of sin that robs you. Sin is a thief of joy. And He has now placed within you the Spirit of God that says, I can live once again unto His glory. If you separate your joy and your purpose in this world from God's glory, you will be on a path to destruction. This is essentially the sin from the beginning. Eve wonders in a moment in the garden, wait, is God's best and my best, my best aligned or not? The serpent says, no, they're not aligned. God has a best in mind, and He's using you. You need to live for your best. And ultimately, what happens is that in Christ, we 
are alive again to realize that God's best is our best. There is no joyful, greater, fuller life. If you would just skimp on holiness or skimp on what God desires, you'll get a little bit more for you and then ultimately be getting some for Him. God's glory is our purpose. We've been designed for it. It's all that He gives us effort for and ultimately is what it means to live a full life. Let's pray. God, I ask that You'd help us. I want to know, uh, personally in me, I want to know more fully what it means to live for Your glory, for your, the purpose that You've designed me. I confess the sin of my life that has fallen short of how You've designed me to live, for the, the love that I withhold, for the times that I am not sober-minded or self-controlled. I pray that you would forgive us all for those kind of sins and that you would lead us more into a path of joy and life and righteousness in you. God, we are in a world that is clamoring for purpose. We live in a world that desires to be made known and to they're jockeying for position. We feel that in our own souls. And God, I pray that we would be those who have set, a, set aside our own pride, our own needs, that we would be singularly focused on your glory and your purpose, that we could love one another well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.